Yeah. And that's what's so, it's what, it's so crazy because our deepest desire is to be loved. Our deepest, that's why everybody does what they do. You know, everyone just wants to be loved for who they are, but they're afraid that if they show people who they are, that they're not going to be loved. So they don't show people who they are. And so they in turn create it for themselves where they don't feel that they're loved for who they are because they don't put themselves out there and they're not vulnerable enough to show people that. And so it's a scary risk and I get it. But if we really do want to be loved for who we are and what we have to offer the world, we just have to choose that confidently and choose to love ourselves. And then people will show up and those who will love us will be able to see who we are. They will see it and then they can love it. That's Jillian Orr, who became a national news story in April 2022. Jillian was on the graduation stage at Brigham Young University when she opened her graduation gown to reveal a rainbow-colored flag. Brigham Young University is the flagship university for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jillian, who was 28 years old at the time, had served on an 18-month mission, was raised in the church, and was a devout member. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints restricts LGBTQ students at BYU from dating or showing signs of affection while enrolled. Jillian was there to send a message, and it was a message that did not come without risk. Universities are able to revoke diplomas and take other steps that could have isolated from her and her community. Jillian has become an advocate and a hero to many people at the university and beyond who are struggling with coming out to their families, their friends, or within their faith. Today, we're going to talk about what it's like to become thrust into the headlines and what it's like to be a proud LGBTQ person in an environment that doesn't always respect you for who you are and does not encourage you to bring your full stuff. Thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, awesome. So I, I wanted to tell you a little bit of a, a backstory about how I first heard about you. I was doing research for a coaching client who was at Brigham Young University. She had told me a story about the university and how it was willing to work with the LGBTQA um, community, a group that wasn't a part of the university, to prepare flyers with resources to go into student welcome packets. And she told me how at the last minute, the BYU administrators decided to take the flyers out and destroy them. And we were having these conversations at the time about conflicts between her faith, she's a devout Mormon, and her sexual orientation. And I was sort of taken aback as I was searching and looking for resources when I came across your story, because here in the midst of all this conflict and all this tension, here is this woman who had the courage to walk out on the stage at BYU at graduation with a rainbow flag sewn into her graduation gown. What was it that inspired you to take that step? Well, I think, you know, for me, it was... 
it wasn't just one thought or one one moment. It was a buildup for me because, you know, starting to identify how I felt and how I started to realize who I was and what I identified as is really hard when you're in an environment where that isn't celebrated or welcomed or even wanted. And so the steps leading up to it, there was a lot of a lot of cognitive dissonance, you know, a lot of my beliefs were clashing with how I felt, with what I wanted to believe, with, with, you know, what I, what the church was telling me. And so leading up to my graduation, I had a lot of, you know, there's, there's a couple of stories of tests that I had to take that I disagreed with or doctrines that were being taught and things that the teachers were saying, very homophobic comments or homophobic quizzes that were painful for me. And so leading up to my graduation, it was a big deal for me to finally graduate and and get out, you know, come out in multiple, get out in multiple ways, get out of the closet, and get out of the college. Right. Um, but it was a moment for me to show that people like me will be seen, that I will be seen, and the other students who were suffering and struggling the same way that I was, or that were dealing with painful situations, that they were seen too, and that I was, you know, standing and representing that for them. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I, a lot of folks, I, I think, don't know that universities actually can take away degrees. And I remember thinking about that risk for you and then stepping back and really thinking about it, that the real or one of the real risks, perhaps even a bigger risk, was sort of like severing yourself from your community and your sense of belonging. Did you have any fears about that? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the number one fear that members of the LGBTQ face when they are within this organization because it is not, we're not treated the same. We don't get the same privileges or the same blessings, I guess you could say, or even the same levels of, I don't know, rewards in heaven because of how we're born. And so it is really painful and there's a lot of fear to be ostracized or to be to have things taken away from us and to realize that the love that they say is so unconditional really does have conditions. I know that over time, right, the church has been willing to shift its position on social issues. You know, there's that phrase in the Book of Mormon that says something like, they shall be white and delight some people. And that was used for a while yeah. to justify, you know, different roles for people of different races and up into the 1970s, the church really restricted the role of Black Americans and certain important rituals and prohibited Black men from being priests. And, you know, the church also once opposed marriages of people of different ethnicities. And so much of that has changed. I was wondering, do you, do you have hope for a shift in the church's approach to people who identify as LGBTQ? No, I, I did for a long time. And then the more research and the more studying I did, I realized how damaging that would be to the church if they were to ever allow it. I think it would throw off the patriarchy. I think it would throw off the role that and responsibilities and privileges that men get within the organization. And so personally, my own belief is that I don't ever see it changing. Um, and I also think it would be very, it would be, it would cause a lot of issues within the very faithful members because they hold on so tight to that doctrine. You know, um, I could even quote that it says, you know, in some of the doctrines that I was raised in where it says homosexual and lesbian behavior is a serious sin. 
If you find yourself struggling with the same gender attraction or you're being persuaded to participate in inappropriate behavior, seek counsel from your bishop. And so this, it's very, they're very clear about it that if this were ever to change, I think people would question if the leaders of the church really are inspired because according to the church, doctrine should never change. And so I, when I was, you know, newly coming out and still trying to be a bridge for the church and be this unique member, I hoped it would. But now looking at it, I realize how it can't. It, they will never allow it because of how it would affect their own foundation. Well, it's really interesting, too, because when I think about those other issues like the racial ones or ethnicity, there's probably a striking difference in the sense that, you know, from a, a faith perspective, and then something else he said was really interesting, that idea of the patriarchy, that to accept lesbian families or uh, to accept bisexual families or to accept other parts of the community would, from a doctrinal perspective, from a the actual rewards that come in that in the I guess to simplify it afterlife, mm-hmm. um, it would break something at the core of the foundation. And then the second part, in pointing out the patriarchy, I was thinking to actually be open to let's say lesbian or bisexual members within the church would require being open to a different kind of equity. It sounds like. Is that- yes. Yeah. I, you know, I think questions would come up of like, okay, wait, we were always taught that, you know, the number one thing is that the core of God's doctrine is the family, the unit, the father and the mother, you know? And so if we have a mother and a mother, how does that work? And how, you know, who gets the special priesthood privileges that the men get? And so I think it would definitely crumble their foundation and I don't think they can ever go back on it. And so they're just going to constantly deal with this push against, you know, this wall that they won't budge on. And I think it's going to destroy them either way. What do you mean by that? Destroy them either way? I think that as long as they hold out against that, something that we know is so true, like equality, it's, it's humanity to allow people to love who they love. And I think that's becoming more culturally accepted by the upcoming generation that, they're going to be losing members dramatically at an extreme rate, which they already have been due to this because they disagree with that doctrine. And so if that doctrine isn't true, then how can this really be God's church? How can these really be God's prophets? And so I think if they hold on to this doctrine, more of the upcoming generation will leave. And I wonder whether that's a, a singular challenge or for the for the Mormon church or all churches in general, you know, membership in the Southern Baptist, mem- membership in all sorts of churches are dropping and just very anecdotally talking to younger people about why they're not participating. They're an assortment of reasons, but one of them seems to be a misalignment with their values and their, um, the values and the beliefs of younger people and, and um, religious organizations themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, you, who have grown up in, let's say, the last 20 years, there's been a greater openness about the LGBTQA community. But back in the 1980s, 1990s, and I think it's hard for people to even fathom that even coming out to your colleagues at work or school or, you know, 
any other form was a really brave decision. And it came with the risk of being ostracized by like a much wider swath of a person's uh, community. You know, at the time, homosexuality in general was tied to the AIDS crisis. And I'll never forget um, a colleague when I was working at the New York Times in the late 1990s and the early 2000s who came out as transgender. And at the time, gay employees were still pretty quiet about their sexual orientation. Now, I will say in retrospect, the Times leadership handled it masterfully. But one of the things that struck me about your story is that by coming out inside the church, you were putting yourself in a position that was very similar to people coming out in the 1980s or the 1990s, where you were putting at risk almost all your relationships and your sense of belonging. Right now, I think people focus very much on their families and some of the loss there and other elements of discrimination. But I think there's something much deeper, it seems like you were putting at risk. Did you you recognize that in the moment? And what did it feel like on that day and the days afterward? I don't know that I felt it. I don't know that I really understood completely the fear of what would come next because I didn't expect it to happen the way that it did. I mean, I was raised, I was raised in the Mormon church my whole life. And not only was I raised in it, but like my mother chose to homeschool us, all of me and my siblings, so that we could have an education that was even more um, woven into religion. And so it was my whole life, like church was my life. And that's where my social was. And that's where my, you know, I learned leadership and I learned to public speak and stand in front of other people and teach. And I served a mission. And so everything that I did was very spiritual based. And I'm a very spiritual person and I have been since I was very young. And so to then, to then realize who I was and how I didn't fit anymore was really scary to, to want to own that or to want to say it out loud because I knew that people wouldn't see me the same as what I was. I knew that I would be knocked off, I guess you could say like a pedestal of of what I was because, you know, in the church they teach you the more righteous you are, you know, the the higher up in heaven you're going to be, the happier in life you're going to be, and the better you are. And so it really was like this moment where I was going to be knocked off of this pedestal of how great I was because of how I identified. Did you have younger people who were looking up to you at the time, like people around you who sort of viewed you as the model? Like with religiously? Yeah. Oh, I I worked with tons of youth, tons of youth on my mission, tons of youth when I went back to my home uh my home congregation, like they wrote me on my mission. These kids would me- message me like they I had this My passion has always been working with youth and, you know, trying to inspire and empower them. I remember that I even spoke at youth conferences, at girls camps. Like I was very involved in it because that was one of my passions. And so I was looked up to greatly by the youth. And so there was a lot of pressure there where I, I was afraid of, you know, once you leave the church or once you are different than what they teach, you lose credibility. So- when you and your sister um, were sort of sewing the rainbow color flag in and, you know, as you were going up to the stage and getting ready for the gra- graduation, did you even, 
what uh, did you know in the moment that you walked on the stage were you 100% sure you were going to do it or what was the moment where it became 100% sure for you that you were going to do it oh man i i didn't even know if i was going to do it um because i wanted to i wanted to have dignity in a message i wanted to make a statement with class and dignity and so I, when I was going up to it, I was so nervous. I was going back and forth and I was texting my sisters and, um, my parents didn't know I was going to do it. My brothers didn't know I was going to do it. And so when I was messaging them, my sister said, look, Jill, if you get up there and you feel that this isn't right for you and it's not what you're supposed to do, we still see you. And when she told Mm. me that it just hit my heart, it hit me so heavy. Like I, I felt so loved and seen, but I also wanted to make sure that other students felt once felt loved and seen. And so that's when I decided to do it was when she told me that because I wanted them to feel that same way. And so it was right before, you know, they, you walk up and you give them your name and they read it over the announcer and the camera looks right at you. And that's when I just opened it up and showed it to the world and closed it and just kept walking. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me about that, because I've seen a lot of people do, you know, risky things for a cause or just risky things for entertainment. But the look on your face in that moment, like it was a look of somebody who looked proud, who looked like they had a weight lifted off their shoulders. What did it feel like in that like snap moment when you were opening that gown? I kind of blacked out and I wondered if I actually did it or not when I was done. (laughs) I can confirm for you, you did. <laughs> must have been because it got a lot of attention, so I must have done it. But <laughs> right, <laughs> no, it was, it was a you know. There's an adrenaline rush. It's like riding a roller coaster where you're anxious beforehand, and then you do it, and then in the moment you're like freaking out and it's crazy, and then afterwards you're like, oh my gosh, I want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. you no, know, standing there, it was the moment of me being grounded, and it was like, here I am. I'm being seen and I'm moving on. And that's all that mattered. Like I didn't have to say anything, didn't have to shout, didn't have to make a huge, you know, political or scream anything. No, it was just like, this is my statement and I will continue and you will see me. Yeah. And you felt seen. That's awesome. And for you, what, what has this journey been like of sort of reconciling your sexual orientation and your faith? What has that been like? You had mentioned earlier that you know you didn't have much hope for the um, for the church to come around. Where does that leave you? It you know it's a painful process because you have to grieve. I had to grieve something I loved. I had to grieve something that was safe for me that no longer was safe, and it was hard because I felt for the longest time that I had to pick between my sexuality and my spirituality. And that was really painful. But through the process, I realized that my relationship with God doesn't belong to the church and my spirituality doesn't belong to the church. And so when I started to allow things to die out in my life and to say, thank you for what you've given me, but I no longer need to believe in you or I no longer need this in my life has been really freeing in a beautiful way. And there's grief with it, but it's very beautiful to be able to open my heart. And I can honestly tell you 
that I have felt closer to God and to humanity in general. I felt so much more compassionate towards other people than I used to. Because, you know, the church teaches love, but I never realized how judgmental that love was and how conditional that love was until I was on the other side of it. And so Mm. it has been a very clarifying experience for me to realize where I stand and where the truth really is. Did you feel as if you couldn't be authentic in your relationship with God if you weren't open about your sexual orientation? No, actually, when I figured it out, I was like, oh, okay, so we're doing that. Okay, God, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> like, you shouldn't have told me that earlier because that we would have like, you know, for me, it's I being raised in the church, you, you know, you're kind of taught that if you don't drink alcohol, you're not an alcoholic. And so I always thought if I didn't act on homosexual feelings, I wasn't homosexual. And so it wasn't until I was older that I realized, oh my gosh, like these feelings are real regardless of if I act on them or not. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I am this way. And so I was like, all right, if that's what it is, that's what I'm going to live. This feels right to me, you know? And that's kind of how I've always been is the moment I realize something is right and true, I jump on it and I run with it. And so my experience was different than most in that aspect. Oh, it's interesting. That's a, it's an interesting one. I, I remember reading it about what life was like for you before. And my understanding is you were raised in the church. You did a 19 or 18 month mission in Eugene, Oregon. You had leadership roles, as you mentioned. And I think I had read that you had served in the temple for a couple of years. What was it like growing up for you? And what did you imagine for your life, let's say, at your in your late twenties or your early thirties, what did you think? What did, what did you think it would be like before all this happened? <laughs> so, yeah, being raised in the church, the focus is always the family. Everything is the family. My whole mission. I went door to door and taught people, "Hey, I have the truth about the restored church, about how to keep families together." And it was, I mean, it was this this life and understanding of the family is the unit, the husband and the wife and the kids is the, is the greatest calling. The greatest thing you can do with your life is to be a mom and to have kids. And even though I taught that, I actually, I actually never really fully was like pursuing that myself. Like after my mission, I jumped into my career. I jumped into adventures. I created a business. I, you know, I just started doing these things and following my ambitions but when I was younger, you know, you always have that thought of, okay, I'm going to find a husband. And so I dated a lot. I dated a lot of men. And I, I, I was always admired in my, in my congregation for, I had this like personal rule that I wouldn't kiss someone unless I was exclusively dating them. And everyone was like, wow, Jill, you're just so mature and you have such values. And the truth was, I didn't really want to. <laughs> I didn't really want to kiss them anyways. You're like, I, I, there's some, there's a fact you don't know that might make this easier than you think. Yeah. All these other girls are like, how do you do that? And I'm like, I'm just so spiritual. <laughs> no, I did. I didn't really want to. The, um, but, one of the things uh, you, I, I was thinking about as you were talking, um, and you were talking about that idea of talking to people that about the idea of family and marriage. And I know, you know, whether it's in in the church or it's in other spots, there are plenty of people who are 
say, bisexual, you know, even lesbians in cases who, because of their faith or because of societal pressures, they still end up getting married to a man. They still end up doing all the the things that are expected of them. And, you know, there's no question, like, we live in a very heteronormative world. And mm-hmm. in other words, you know, heterosexuality, you know, binary and biological genders, and, 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 and the concept of, like, feeling natural and fast sexual attraction are kind of like the norms. And, you know, a lot of those things are pushed on us as children, we're pushed toward these constructs, you know, regardless of whether we were born in a gender or sexual minority or in the majority. And most research seems to confirm that our sexual orientation is something that we're born with, but society sort of slams against that for sexual minorities. Do you, it sounds like you believe you've always been bisexual. And so what, what, in that point where you were discovering something, what was it you were discovering? What was that process like for you? I think for me, I think it's a continual process and a continual learning of who we are. And I think that's, I mean, that's the beauty of life is that we're constantly learning about ourselves and things that we do because of how we're raised and things that we choose to do because of what we want and what we love. And so I was raised with the expectation to date men, to date boys, to pursue that. And then when I started to realize I had feelings for women, I, you know, I got in a relationship where I, I loved her enough that I decided to face those shadows and to face what I thought was my demon, which actually became one of the most beautiful parts of who I am. I, I realized that, oh, I do love women. I do love that. And I do want that. And so I then identified as bisexual. And now, I mean, it's been, it's been almost a year since, since I've identified that way that I've learned more and more that I probably actually identify more with lesbian than I do with women because of just the attraction and the level and the desire to be with a woman is so much greater than to be bisexual that I think for me to say bisexual, it felt very safe for me. Mm. It felt safe to like, you know, to tell my mom, hey, I do like women, but I also do like men, you know, like I, mm. I still do. And that felt safe. And I think that's also very common, but it's also okay because we're still trying things out. You know, we're testing things and we're we're experiencing it and it's okay to experience, okay, I'm going to experience bisexual. You know what? That's not quite it. I think I'm going to experience lesbian. You know what? Maybe that's not quite it. Maybe I'm asexual, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's okay for people to change. And a lot of people feel like they have to pick it and they have to decide, even with the pronouns or with attraction or identifying. But it's okay to change because we as human beings will constantly change as we learn who we are and learn what we love. I think it's impossible to know right off the bat everything about ourselves. And that's what's so cool about life is that we get to continue to learn and love ourselves as we as we learn. Yeah. And it, it really is a continuum and it's really, you know, to the point that you're making, it's really about this idea to, of being open to discover who you really are and what you really want. That, that relationship that you mentioned, was that in college? Uh, yeah, it was, it was when I was in college and it was with uh, a close friend of mine that we became real, real close friends. <laughs> right. Did, um, how did you guys, uh, figure out, uh, about both of your, was she another member of the church? Yeah, she was a member of the church. She was a BYU graduate. 
she, I started in my career before I started college. So she was graduating when I was actually going to BYU. And um, even though we're close to the same age, but we were both in the church. We actually both served in the temple together um, and we became roommates. We actually were coworkers. That's where I met her. And we just became really, really close. And everybody knew it was us. Like we were best friends. We traveled, we did everything together. And I just realized as I was dating men at the time, because I felt, you know, as long as I date a man, I'm not gay. As long as I date a man, I'm not in a relationship with her. And it was, it was the avoidance. It was the justification. But the more that I did that, the more I realized how much I loved her. And so that's when I started to realize that while I was at BYU and realized that I felt trapped because mm. I couldn't be in a relationship. And if I was turned in, then BYU does have the power to take away my degree and to kick me out of the school, which has been done to many people. And so it was a scary position to be in while we were in the middle of navigating our own sexuality, navigating our relationship, navigating school and work, you know, it's just a lot and feeling like we couldn't say anything because I was in the middle of my education and I, I couldn't afford to lose it. Mm, yeah. The, um, I think so many people can relate to that idea. You know, you have your best friend and you may have your boyfriend or you may have your girlfriend and like you find yourself gravitating back to your best friend, whether it's same gender or a different gender, you're mm -hmm. gravitating back. And then one day you turn around and you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what am I yeah. doing? You know, there's this, you know, you mentioned the idea of the way that some people are treated at the university and there's this, there's a saying I've always loved, and I'm going to totally butcher it, but it's this concept and this idea that the church shouldn't be a museum for the healthy and the righteous, but it should be a shelter for um, people who are hurting. And as you were talking about some of those quizzes and tests and things that people said, I thought it must be doubly painful to know that you're in a sexual minority as you're not just being taught, but hearing such harsh messages about who you were. What, what are some of the examples of, of that? And what were you like? You mentioned some of the questions that you were asked in classes that you took. Anything sort of stand out to you? Yeah, there was one. There's, there's two examples that I, that I remember very clearly. Um, one of them was a paper that I had to write. And it was a paper on, I don't even remember. It was one of my family and relationships and family classes. And the question was, write a paper about, you know, write a 10, I don't even remember how many pages, write a paper about why marriage is between a man and a woman. And it's it connected back to some documents and some church doctrine that they wanted us to refer back to. And they're like, tell us why this is God's plan. And I sat there and it, it hurt because to write and give them the answer that they wanted felt like it was going against, it was dishonest to what I knew was what I felt was right and what, you know, who I was. And so I sat there and I was like, well, do I just fake it and just get it through and just get the points and move on? Or do I say something? And so it was, I, my paper, this was the shortest paper I've ever written. And it said, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but I'm paraphrasing it. It said, I disagree with this. 
I am not going to say where I stand on this topic because of fear of, you know, other repercussions of it, but I'm also not going to go against my character and my honor by faking it and telling you what you want to hear. So this is, this is my paper and this is my response and I will not just give you what you want, but I disagree with this. What was the reaction to that? I turned it in and they didn't say anything and I didn't get my points on it. Wow. So silence. Yep. Silence, both the, both the grade and the, wow. That must have been, that, that must've been both hard, satisfying and tough. It was, it was disappointing, but I, you know, you just move on and I try to make up the points in other areas, but just do what you do. But then the other one was a quiz that I took where it was a, it was another, it was, it was one of my psychology classes, but one of the quizzes that I took, it was, you know, that one stuck out to me the most. And it said, the question was one who truly loves LGBTQ people will blank. And so you had to pick one of the options that fills it in. And so of the four options, the one that I selected that I thought was correct was love them unconditionally and accept that whatever they want for that, whatever they want is what's best for them. And when I got to the end of the scoring, I saw that that was wrong. And so I, yeah, I, I, so I went back to it. because I was like, how did I get that one wrong? And the correct answer was this. One who truly loves LGBTQ people will love them unconditionally while continuing to realize that their greatest happiness will only come through living according to the gospel principles. And this was in a psychology class? It was. Mm. And so that, I mean, that, you know, the gospel principles is to not act on your homosexual feelings, to not be a relationship or have any romantic relationships with anyone else. And so that blew that just destroyed me i just remember taking it and crying because it sounds like a a play on that whole idea of hate the sin love the center but it's almost worse because it's like you know hate the sin love the center if the center doesn't act on said sin right right it's like love them unconditionally but they're never going to be as happy as us right 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 and they can never have as much of God's love. No, they'll never be happy. They'll never get all the rewards, all the blessings. And that was hard. And so I actually, I called, my mom called me actually. and She just was checking in on me. And I was like, I'm actually having a hard time right now mm. because of one of these questions. And I, I told her about it. And my parents are still active. They're very involved in the church. They're very faithful, faithful members. And I read it to her and I told her that. I said, mom, do you do you believe that I'm, you know, that I'm a sinner, that I'm born broken, that this is a sin? Mm. And she said, you know, Jill, I was raised believing that, but I don't think I can believe that anymore. And I'm not sure exactly what I believe, but I know that that's, that doesn't sound right to me. Who did you tell first and how did you tell your family? I'm, I'm very fortunate because I have an older brother who's gay And he was kind of the maverick, you know, the years before he came out to all of us and we all grieved and it hurt and it was sad and it was painful. But then when it was my turn, I was still nervous because I knew that my parents also put me on this this righteous pedestal. But I, I told my siblings, I told my sisters and 
told my siblings and then went and told my parents. And I mean, my family is so accepting and so loving, and I've never had really any pushback towards being, towards being gay or, you know, even leaving the church or even, you know, having a girlfriend. They've always been so supportive and loving. Oh, that's awesome. We should thank your brother for paving the way. <laughs> Absolutely. It wasn't the easiest on his end, I will say. And I, I do have a lot of love and respect for him because he was, he did pave the way on that. And my parents, I know that my parents learned how they would, they wish they had responded to him. And I knew that they got that second chance with me. And so yeah. I'm grateful. Know, it's, it's, it's difficult for, you know, people, uh, parents, you know, parents worry Anytime I remember sitting down and talking to a parent about their, and this is when I was much younger, I was in high school and I was precocious and I love to challenge parents on their thoughts and beliefs. And, you know, we were, we were talking about different topics. We were talking about racial marriage and, you know, race and all sorts of different things. And, you know, the, the person, the parent at the time said to me, well, you know, if you're black, you're black, there's no way to get out of that. Like people are going to discriminate against you based on your color of your skin. There's no way to hide it. And she said, but you know, if my daughter or my son gets into a interracial relationship, that's like a choice to be discriminated against. And she said, it's not fair. It's not right. It's not something I believe in, but as a parent, I'm still fearful. I'm Mm -hmm. still afraid of what the world is going to do to my child. And it just makes me wonder, like, as you're walking on the stage, were your, were your parents nervous? Was, was your sister nervous? Was your family nervous in the aftermath of it? Yeah, they were. Um, they for sure were. My dad works for the church. And so I know that made my parents anxious. Honestly, though, they never said a single thing. They never expressed regret or concern or disappointment, like nothing. And so I was, I was really grateful for that, that, you know, they just let me choose my, what I was going to do with my life. And I know it, and you know, I know it does affect my family. I know it puts the spotlight on them, which I didn't expect. I honestly did not even expect what happened after all of it to happen, but they've definitely been so kind about it, but everyone was nervous about how it would affect you know, my parents in general. So being a celebrity was not a part of the plan. <laughs> You're only a celebrity if you get paid. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So that's actually an excellent segue. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what it's like to be a celebrity, right? Or to become one. They imagine like, you know, in their heads, they're like, you're getting paid. There's a staff. You've got public relations people. Somebody's reading all the nasty emails that come in and only giving you the nice ones. And it's not like that. (laughs) So I was wondering what it felt like to be, you know, sort of thrust in the headlines to become an advocate, to become a sort of an influencer for good in this area. What has it been like? It has been a roller coaster. I will say that much. It has been just so up and down and insane because when when I did it, I was like, okay, you know, maybe... I don't know, maybe some, some, maybe a Utah news article, newspaper will maybe will pick it up or something. And they'll be like, oh, you know, BYU, hopefully we can get some things changed or BYU students, you've been seen, you know, something supportive, something nice. No, I woke up the next day and I had everybody that wanted to contact me and they wanted to do interviews. And 
that's the thing is everybody wanted my my time immediately and I still had a job. I was still in work. Like <laughs> I had a life still. And so they're like, we need to talk to you now. And I'm like, well, I have a job until who knows what time, you know? And then all of a sudden things are blowing up. But then that means I got a lot of hate. I got a lot of hate as well. You know, students who are like super excited and supportive. And then a lot of members who are like, you are ashamed. You're so shameful. This is against the church. How dare you? Mm disrespect the brethren and disrespect God and you are a disgrace and you're a heathen, you know, and How it just they communicating oh, these messages. They were Instagram, mostly Instagram and Facebook is where they came at me and TikTok a bit too. We had a lot. I got canceled on TikTok at one point. And so it so was just, no one, what do you mean by canceled that just that canceled is it's like this cancel culture where you, mm-hmm. when you go on and you post something and then a lot of people, they just spam you with hate and they spam uh, you with all these comments that then other people are seeing it and it attracts more of those types of people who also want to come at it and attack it. And so I, at one point, I couldn't post anything without it just being so loaded with hate Oh wow! that I had to just stop. I had to take a break. And so it's it was actually really exciting and emotionally taxing at the same time because a lot of people were grateful for what I did and they felt seen and they felt inspired and empowered. And that's all I wanted. All I wanted was for people to be, you know, feel seen and to feel more confident in making whatever the next right choice was for them. Mm-hmm. But it also came, you know, with a lot of kickback and it always does. It always will. I remember reading somewhere that you were surprised by some of the most positive reactions, right? From people you didn't even know, um, reacting very positively to you in the aftermath, but, but that you were also hurt. I think I had read you were hurt the most by some of the reactions from people who, who did know you. What was that like? Yeah, it was, it was beautiful to see how many people had my back and supported me in the world that I didn't even know, but the painful parts were there were people from my mission, people that I served, that I ate dinner at their tables, that I weeded their gardens. And there was one of them that I was really close to, this, this woman who was actually married to someone in the bishopric. And so it's like these people who I, I served side by side with, and I served them when I was on my mission. And they were the ones that said, I can't imagine how disappointed your mom is that you're not going to have a temple marriage now you're not going to have you know children born in the covenant they're going they're not going to be the within the right church and it was just so painful for them to be like i could see that you've been searching and you've been lost and you're trying to find something and it's so sad that you've chosen this hmm. were you able to find words to respond to those comments or criticisms yeah i had to you know I had to sit and I, I allowed myself to feel the pain of it because that's a new level of grief to realize that people I loved had conditions for me and had, you know, expectations that I had to fulfill to receive their love and their support. And so I had to take some time and then come back and respond with, you know, if if you're not on my island and if this isn't something you can support, then I I don't need this in my life. And I'm sorry because I wish I wish I could have kept you in my life but I can't keep you in my life if this is how you feel your support is. Yeah. An interesting thing for me, sort of my journey um, in the church, I grew up religious, hopping from all sorts of different churches. Cause when you're a black family growing up, the 
south, you find the best church, regardless of what denomination it says on its on its door. But uh, the you know grew up Southern Baptist for the most part, and was very active in church. I was a leader in the church. I you know did on Youth Sunday. I was the one who got picked as the the youth to give the um, to give the sermon. I was I was just that person, but I'm naturally inquisitive, and so I had gone to a church in, outside of Atlanta in Marietta, Georgia, called Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. You know, Southern Baptists in the heart of the South, and they had women ministers. So I had moved mm-hmm. to Virginia, in theory, a more liberal area, and I had asked our youth minister. We were working to prepare for that youth Sunday, and I had asked him in the back, like, "Why don't we have any youth ministers?" And he said. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the Bible that says we shouldn't. It's just the church's doctrine. And, you know, so he was he was supportive of the idea. And so I went to my Sunday school class the next Sunday. And oh, by the way, the uh I I the sermon I gave was on Jeffrey Dahmer and why uh why <laughs> why we should be able to love Jeffrey Dahmer and either right. loved it or they hated it. Oh yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So but I went to my Sunday school class and I said to my Sunday school teacher, hey, and it was a woman. I was like, why don't we have women ministers? And she's like, I don't know. Let me go ask the head of the Sunday school. So next week she comes back with her answer in the Bible verses. And then, you know, she says that, uh, you know, what the Bible teaches is that women should not, and I don't think the Bible does teach this, should not teach uh, men over the age of 13. And I said, you know, just using logic, then why are you teaching us? So, <laughs> All right. Then, right? <laughs> so, so the next week, they bring in the head of Sunday school. And what he says, which was so fascinating, he said the doctrine, and this was a defining moment for me. He said what the doctrine was. And then instead of answering the question of where it said it in the Bible and why we then had a Sunday school teacher teaching men over the age of 13. He said, and, you know, the devil sows division, looking right at me in the middle of the room. And it, it was a painful moment, but it was also a super freeing moment because yeah. it was the moment where I separated my relationship with God yeah. from the people who are religious leaders. Mm. And just to add a little bit more twist to this story, so I had considered I, I was either going to be a journalist or I was going to be a minister. Mm-hmm. And I made the decision to become a journalist, but I went off to a Christian school. And I only lasted one semester over a very, very similar issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I My parents had given me a gift during my senior year of high school, and it was a Bible with annotations in Greek and Hebrew where it could be translated. Mm-hmm. And I tripped across this annotation referring to, I think it was uh, Corinthians or Timothy, where it talks about, it must be Corinthians, where it talks about um, homosexuals not inheriting the kingdom of earth. And I was looking at the footnotes. The footnote said, well, you know, actually, really what this Greek word means is child molesters. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I was like, that was really interesting. So I dug up a little bit of the history and found out that it was changed to the word homosexuals in 1946. So Mm. 
I became the guy walking around this very conservative Baptist <laughs> campus saying, did you know this word was only changed till 1946? There you go. Um, and it eventually, it, it led me to lead, leave and, and eventually become, you know, went off to the University of Maryland, a bigger school, but I, but I became a really big ally. And mm-hmm. I think part of what helped me in that moment, and don't get me wrong, I had to take a step back from God for a moment, was that ability to separate my faith and or my relationship in God, my ability mm-hmm. to have faith from the people who are in leadership roles in the church. It sounds like that's kind of what's happened with you. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. It's It's that moment of, I don't know, I just think it's realization of grounding in what you know to be true versus what everybody is telling you. And it's, it's, it's sitting into that knowing, you know, as Glennon Doyle says, she says to sit and find your knowing and to trust it regardless of what everyone else is saying. And that's, that's what I had to realize is that there's no man nor entity that can come between me and God and my revelation. Do you consider yourself a member of the church? No, I do not. I cannot affiliate with an organization like that any longer. Does it hurt or? I, yeah, it hurt a lot. It hurt a lot at the beginning. There was a lot of pain because it was my home. There was a lot of pain. But I think now I've I've come to a place where I, it went from pain and sadness of letting go to being grateful that I no longer am a part of it because of, how much shame it caused in my life and how much I don't, there is a lot of religious trauma that I've had to process through and I've had to heal in my own heart. And so I think there's, I'm in a new phase right now of how I feel about it all. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that idea of religious trauma? I think it's something that people don't fully understand at times. Yeah, I think... I can only, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. There are therapists that help support individuals with religious trauma. You know, it's, it's when the religion has caused stressful, degrading, you know, dangerous, or there were abusive situations. And for me, there was, there was a lot of stress and there were moments of, of degradation of things towards myself, towards, you know, being a female or stress of being perfect, of showing up a certain way of, not allowing myself to feel a certain way and feeling unworthy and unlovable because of feeling a certain way or wanting something. And so there's a lot of trauma that has come from that, that has affected my relationships with other people, even my relationships with men in general, that there's these expectations we had and these unsaid, these un- this unspoken culture where there's a lot of shame if you are not living to the worthy standard that they are asking or that they're requiring. And that we, you know, even on my mission, I remember there were sisters there who were like, if we are more worthy, if we are more righteous, we will be more successful on our mission. And so they would, they would cut things out. They wouldn't even listen to Disney music when they were on their mission. They wouldn't even sing it because they would say that that was unrighteous. And the more righteous they were, the more worthy they were. And so that there's so much pain in feeling that that's how God, you know, that that's the relationship is that we have to be perfect to be loved or to be blessed or to be happy. 
And it takes away from the beauty of we are who we are and that we can love ourselves for the mess that we are. Mm. Yeah. Because I think for, for someone like you and for so many people, whether it has to do with your gender identity or sexual orientation or just your views or beliefs or, or to your point about perfectionism, that can be a part that, you know, people, whether it's through religion or something else can set these ideals and these expectations for us that are just wholly, wholly unrealistic. And, you know, you made the point earlier about cognitive dissonance. It can kind of break your view of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and be be super harmful. So I've got one for you. So if BYU called up tomorrow and said, <laughs> hey, Jillian, we want to hold a giant, you know, we want to go to the basketball stadium, invite all the students, and we want you to talk to them about anything you want to talk to them about. We're not going to interrupt you. No retribution. No problem. We just want you to go talk. What message would you have? <laughs> oh, if only, if only they would. Hey, we can work on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think BYU, I think they're waiting for me to step foot on their ground so they can get me. Um, honestly, I think what I want to share with any and all members or people or even, in, you know, my message is for those in the LGBTQ community. My message is for those who feel that pain and feel that fear that I felt because I understand that. Those are my people. That is what I experienced. And I think what I would want to tell them is that, you know, a lot of, there's people who choose to come out big and bold and announce things. And there's people who don't say anything and they just shift over and that's what they just choose to live. And they're not very um, public about it. And for me, my message to people is to find the next right thing for them that they need to do and to do it and to step into that fear. Because the more you step into that fear and choose what you feel is right for you, the more authentic you're going to feel and the happier you're going to be. Because that's what I believe true joy is. I believe that true joy is that learning and loving of who you are and what you feel is right. And so if I could stand in front of all of all of a basketball you know game or whatever it is is that to let them know that they get to choose what they feel is right for themselves and that they can question anything and everything and that no one gets to tell them what is right and wrong but their heart can tell them what is right and wrong and that they need to navigate based off of that. Oh, that's an awesome message. It, it reminds me of something someone once told me. I had a friend who said, hey, Jason, one of my favorite things about you, she said, was that you know me and you love me. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, of course, I love you. I mean, plenty of people love you. And she said, no, you actually know me and still love me and love me. You know me. And it's with no <laughs> yeah. conditions. And I, I, just listening to what you're saying, it just reminds me of that idea of like being able to love someone fully for who they are. Yeah. And that's what's so, it's what, it's so crazy because our deepest desire is to be loved. Our deepest, that's why everybody does what they do. You know, everyone just wants to be loved for who they are, but they're afraid that if they show people who they are, that they're not going to be loved. So they don't show people who they are. And so 
they in turn create it for themselves where they don't feel that they're loved for who they are because they don't put themselves out there and they're not vulnerable enough to show people that. And so it's a scary risk and I get it. But if we really do want to be loved for who we are and what we have to offer the world, we just have to choose that confidently and choose to love ourselves and then people will show up and those who will love us will be able to see who we are. They will see it and then they can love it. I think that's a perfect note to wrap on, Jillian. Thank you for your time. I wanted to see if you had any closing thoughts or anything that you would like to share. I found the conversation both on a personal level and then also thinking about all the young and old and religious and non-religious and, you know, pick your situation, all the LGBTQA people out there who are, you know, hurting and can relate to what you're saying or are proud and can be inspired by what you're saying. I think it's a powerful conversation for them, but I also think it's a powerful conversation for the people who are in sexual majorities, the parents, the friends, other people who either want to be supportive or need to understand what happens when people aren't supportive. So I just wanted to give you a chance, if you had any closing remarks, to go ahead and toss them back to you. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of going back to what I said before is my main message for people is to run into that fear. When there is discomfort, when there is fear, when there is something that they are afraid to face or they're afraid to recognize or talk about, is I run at it. And that's what I that's what I recommend other people to do is when you start to face those things, you start to realize that the demons or the dark sides or the shadows, there's so much to love. And there's so much to see and there's so much compassion that can be had for yourself and for others and to be open to it and just to be open to something that scares you. Because I think that's where also people learn to become allies is when they learn and they meet a person and they love someone in that community. And they're like, wow, how could this be wrong when there's so much love and there's so much beauty in it? And so I, you know, I tell people to ask the questions and to learn and to be open, to be curious, not defensive, and to just run at that fear. 